Welcome to Collier's Talks, a podcast series featuring the latest trends, insights, research, and developments in commercial real estate in Canada and beyond. This is Collier's Talks, and we cover topics ranging from change management to deep dives into specific regions and sectors of the Canadian commercial real estate industry. I'm Daniel Holmes, Executive Managing Director at Collier's, and today we're going to be talking about technology in the future of commercial real estate. In the CRE sector, technology is rapidly evolving as professionals focus on revolutionizing the current commercial real estate landscape. Our industry is prime for disruption, yet information is not always as accessible as we'd like. There have been major steps in embracing technology solutions, but there's a major disconnect between interest and adoption. As the saying goes, technology transformation is a journey, not a purchase. And for today's podcast, I'm delighted to have two extremely influential and passionate tech experts to share in their journeys. Shelby Austin, CEO and co-founder of Arteria AI, a startup that is well on its way in creating a client service offering for drafting, negotiating, and reviewing contracts. And Dean Hopkins, COO of Oxford Properties Group, a leading commercial real estate investor, asset manager, and builder of business teams. Currently, Oxford manages nearly $70 billion of assets across four continents. Shelby, Dean, welcome. Shelby, as a serial entrepreneur, recovering lawyer, and technology executive who is passionate about building teams, can you please give us an overview of what Arteria AI is currently working on in the tech and CRE world? Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me. We here at Arteria believe that the world could be different in terms of leasing documentation. We believe that, in fact, your LOI process and your leasing process could become a point of differentiation uh, with use of the proper technology. We try and ensure that by using automation, you start with the templates of best fit. You're able to reach the conclusion of your negotiations faster and also involve less people because you'll have the historical understanding of everything you've ever done, provide enhanced visibility across the process, but also just ensure that all the information is in one single place, making everything across the board through that process more consistent and also easier. Couldn't agree with you more. Dean, you are a leader that can draw from 25 years of experience with rapid growth and transformational change in organizations of all sizes. You joined Oxford Properties and the CRE world just over two years ago. How has Oxford embraced technology? How aren't we embracing technology uh, is is probably a better question. It's uh, part of everything that we look at now because we think about ourselves in sort of 2025 terms. What's the world going to look like then? What are people going to need in their toolkit in order to do the highest and best use of their time? And so we're literally looking at everything from every process, how we invest, how we design and build buildings, how we lease buildings, all the way to literally our buildings themselves, which we've realized need to up their game pretty substantially in terms of how they actually are digitized and can deliver a better set of amenities, digital amenities to customers and everything in between. So I think technology is pretty pervasive in our view of what a commercial real estate company is going to need to do to be uh, competitive. And the big thing is the new skills that we're starting to realize we need to acquire that we don't have on the ground, be they data science or automation or advanced analytics. All these skills are sort of quite new and we realize we need them in droves and we need them to permeate all the other traditional roles in real estate. So simply put, it's everywhere. And we're excited to be uh, 
undertaking it at all fronts on all geographies. I like that. How have we not embraced it is the better question. Uh, Shelby, let's touch on the last 18, 19 months. And obviously, it's been a challenging time for many, and it's also been an accelerator in a bunch of different ways. Can you highlight the journey for your organization and what you're seeing that the outcome of post-COVID might look like from an office space perspective and from accepting this digital change in commercial real estate as well? Um, Yeah. So first of all, Dean, we started in COVID. So it was like a weird time to start a company. We had to make the decision whether or not we were going to acquire space, what our space meant to us, and all of the usual sort of enabling our people to do their jobs from home and ensuring that they were properly supported through technology to do so. We ended up taking on quite a bit of space, and we did so because, you know, first of all, we thought since no one was really looking at space when we were, that we might be able to take a long-term view of how that might fit but also because we wanted people to have a home to come to and a community place. I mean, we're still not sure if people will come back every day and come into work, but we are confident that we need a beacon for our culture to be set and for people to come and get oriented with who we are and what we're about and certainly have the option to continue to work on site. And so that's sort of been our learnings in terms of how we've uh, used technology. I mean, we believe that for young tech startups like ourselves, that uh, COVID has been a real catalyst for our clients. We know that they have adopted technology much faster and we've seen sort of tailwinds around that. So, you know, on the one hand, it's a bit of a weird thing to be growing so quickly in such a strange time, but there have certainly been, you know, like the world abound has adopted technology, you know, years ahead of where I think we would have been had it not been for the pandemic. Great. Thank you so much, Dean. If you could also, same yeah. question. The last 18, 19 months, is, and you and I have joked in the past that our industry as a whole is a bit of a lagger in technology, but I have seen a lot more of it over the last 18, 19 months as COVID has been a great accelerator for our industry. It's been quite interesting. Having come to real estate very late in my career, I spent sort of 25-ish years in tech. I was quite surprised at just how far behind commercial real estate really was in terms of understanding and embracing kind of the role of technology in the economics of its industry, in the delivery of its services, in the capabilities it can offer. You know, it's sort of other industries are in their second and third sort of iteration of embracing technology and and real estate, I think, is um, only starting to wake up. You know, the waves are only starting to lap on the shores of real estate, but it's coming quickly. As Shelby said, people have started to realize with the silver lining of COVID is that, wait a minute, we can work digitally. We need better tools so that we can continue to work that way. They're starting to wake up to realize data actually is a differentiator. We've seen it in ourselves where we start to realize entering new markets like life sciences, we needed to do that with a data lens and a data advantage. And it was kind of a novel concept to even do that in real estate. It's not novel in other industries. So, I think we're seeing the awakening. We're also realizing that the infrastructure most real estate companies have either at the building level or at the enterprise level are not fit for purpose for where real estate has to go. And there's a lot of work to do to lay the groundwork, lay that kind of foundational below grade elements in order to uh, be able to actually embrace technology. So there's actually a whole lot of work going on across industry right now to sort of shore that work up, which is very interesting. On the return to office front, I think we were joking as we got ready for this call, we sort of, you know, everybody seems to have an opinion on this. And I think the answer is no one really knows. No one knows what the shape's going to look like. No one knows what it's going to 
ultimately shake out like what we do know is it's accelerating trends that were happening before. So we know that office space in particular was being used much more thoughtfully as a weapon in the war for talent and a lot less as a supervisory infrastructure. And so people were starting to think about how do we make it an inviting experience, a rewarding experience, a place where people can actually get more development in. And so we're seeing a pretty massive shift uh, towards using space in much more creative and intelligent ways and inviting ways to make people perform better, be more productive, and actually develop better as people, which I think is exciting. And now uh, through COVID, we're starting to see the hybridization, like where technology is now becoming much more a part of space so people can interact with their colleagues globally or at home or wherever they are working in a much more fluid way. And I think that's exciting that we're seeing those trends, macro trends start to show up, even though everybody's individual choices are going to be quite nuanced and quite flexible. So I think, you know, one size will definitely not fit all. So there's definitely not a single answer on the return to offers front, much as though everybody wishes there were. Yeah, everybody would love to see the crystal ball prediction of uh, what does the office of the future look like. I'm going to back up just a little bit and circle back with Shelby. The acceleration of this digital transformation, and we've talked about the great resignation and what may hold for all of us in the future. Shelby, if you could just elaborate on that a little bit more and share your thoughts, it'd be great. We are in a market right now, um, and I think Dean mentioned this, where we are seeing one of the biggest talent wars you know, ever, um, particularly for technical talent. We have huge tech companies either existing or coming into this market. In COVID, I think that Toronto became the third largest city for tech development in the world, which shocked me, though delighted me for Canada, but shocked me nonetheless. And so I think what we find here is that we just need to really live our values. I think what our employees want us to see is like for us to put both our money, but also like show up where we care and just really make people feel loved and like we're going to be flexible. And we really just, you know, are really just trying to build a company where people will last and really just enjoy their time there. At Arteria, we sort of say, you know, gosh, if you want to go, I mean, I suppose that's okay. Hopefully not, but we hope that you're going to learn stuff while you're here. And so I think we really just focus on really, you know, having a mutually beneficial relationship where there's learnings both ways uh, for as long as we can keep people. But yeah, it is staggering. We've never seen anything like that. And so, you know, obviously we look at our space and at our time as, again, as Dean said, that point of differentiation to try and sort of enable experiences rather than, Dean, I'm going to borrow that sometime, rather than act as a supervisory capacity (laughs) within our space as well. I mean, I'll tack on, Daniel. I think it's actually perversely a good thing for the office sector that it's so competitive for talent because what it's forcing folks to do is think about how they bring all of the weaponry that they can into the war for talent to sort of torture the analogy. Basically, you know, space is a critical piece of that, even though it feels like it shouldn't be. It is. If you can create a very inviting, very contemporary space that is fit for purpose for the kinds of people and the kind of work that you do, and that's very nuanced depending on what industry you're in, what sector you're in, and you actually think about where it is. So instead of it being monolithic, you know, downtown Toronto, but you actually think, oh, wait a minute, I've understand my people. I've got a bit more suburban folks. Maybe I spread it out a little bit. Maybe I incorporate some flex into it. Maybe I'd still have the downtown space so that I have a real center to bring everybody to for large collaboration and community events. You know, I think it's a very interesting time to be in the office leasing market because 
one has to deliver a product into the market that is quite a bit different than it was in the past. You know, we're not just going out there and letting floors. We're actually thinking through strategy of how we can help a customer deliver the best experience so that they can win in the war for talent. And that's a different kind of conversation with a different kind of people. And so even for ourselves, you know, we've got, I don't know, 1,500 people in Toronto. And the important thing is, as Shelby said, we're competing now as a real estate company with the tech companies for talent, which is staggering. How do we compete with Facebook and Google and the startup community and provide an equally rewarding, equally fun, equally developmental experience because we're basically going to the same pools of talent. And that forces us to actually think much more creatively about how we can create really interesting experiences for people. And it means that we're starting to tap into much more diverse pools of talent than we ever have before, which means we then also have to go back to our environments and think, how do we make sure that our environments are created in such a way that those diverse pools of talent will wanna come and work in what has been traditionally a very non-diverse part of the universe in commercial real estate. So it's forcing us actually to think about a lot of very big topics, which are very interesting. So it's not just technology anymore, it's technology becomes the rock in the pond and all of the ripples that blow up from it are quite strategic. Yeah, I'm going to pick up on something that uh, hopefully you've got some global experience to rely on here. As Toronto looks at adding more amenities to our buildings and making it a more experiential opportunity, as you said, for employees and, and customers, Oxford is being very entrepreneur and leading the way with some of those changes that I've seen personally here in Canada. Where are we from a global perspective of adding amenities to our buildings here in Toronto? It's a great question. And I would say the great thing about Oxford is because we are operating in sort of 19 cities and four continents, we get to really harvest the best of from interesting places. So, for example, on ESG and sustainability, circular economy, we're looking to our friends in Europe because they are very much on the front page of that. So and that's becoming not just an amenity anymore. It's becoming an essential part of the value of a building as we start to consider and we start to have conversations with occupiers about, wait a minute, it's not just the physical space anymore, it's how sustainable is the space? How much of a trend towards zero carbon are you going? What's the wellness equation? So wellness becomes another part of the conversation and digital. And I'd say on the sort of traditional amenities, we're doing fine. On ESG, we're way behind and we're catching up, but there's gonna have to be a lot of work done there. I mean, we're just building our first zero carbon building. So, you know, we got a lot of stock, we've got to move in that direction. I say from wellness, we're doing pretty well uh, globally compared to everybody else. We, in fact, just well certified our entire portfolio around the world, one of the largest portfolios in the world to do so. And then from a digital, I think the whole industry is sadly lacking. And so we're working really hard on that. So I'd say one out of three, we're doing great on. The other ones, we're pulling our socks up. Um, in Toronto relative to the rest, there's a fair bit of work to do. As we say, these are all opportunities. Yes. Shelby, if we look at your team and how you grow, and obviously you've had experience with other firms like Deloitte, these amenities for your employees, for yourself, how much do they factor into real estate decisions? I'm not even sure I've ever thought about that. You know, I think if you have them, they're really nice, but I don't know that they're essential. I do think that the components around ESG, around sort of living our values is more important than, for example, having a cool, you know, coffee bar. And I think that that's more important to our team. And so I think that as we think about space and where we want to be, we think mostly around working with 
people and other businesses that we want to support their values as well. As Dean said, diversity is like critical to us. Values are critical to us. We are just trying to create, I guess, a voice of a new kind of iconic Canadian company. And so I know that that sounds lofty, but we are really trying to put our money where our mouth is in terms of that. We talked a little bit about first movers uh, mindset. Maybe Shelby, if you don't mind, just keep going with that theme and and talking about where you see the future of this. You know, it's so interesting because commercial real estate from a technology perspective, you know, is not a leader in terms of maturity. But we also know, like categorically, we know that the winners in their respective spaces will be using technology. And so I always find it interesting that people are waiting to fast follow, particularly when we look at technology like AI, where you really need to ensure that you have proper data before you continue on that journey. And so in order to be able to gain an unfair advantage, and I think that the unfair advantage can be particularly pronounced in sectors like commercial real estate, where you know you can get pretty far ahead of your peers, If you start now, you can ensure you have the right engineering around your data, ensuring you have like the right storage and visibility in order to be able to really make your team smarter, give them better information and give your entire business from end to end this unfair advantage. And so I would just say that I wouldn't underestimate, gosh, I don't even know if we could call it first mover advantage because it sounds like Dean and Oxford have a bit of a go there. But I think that there certainly is a lot of runway to be much more progressive when it comes to facing technology. I mean, in particular, commercial real estate can learn from every other sector out there. For example, financial services, the banks are quite far ahead of where the real estate industry is. And so even learning from others and figuring out how to uh, make better decisions throughout your business, and that can be faster process, better decisions with your data around substantive matters, you know, and just ensuring that your people are being effective and efficient and faced with the right tasks rather than being burdened, you know, with a bunch of sort of uh, simple items, I just think could be really revolutionary in the space. And so, you know, we're starting to see it. We're seeing it more and more in COVID, but we just uh, can't say enough that like it really is possible to win if you sort of continue down the journey. One of the things that's super important for people to understand about this stuff, especially in the AI and data realm, is that as you're building your strategy here, you have to understand just how long it takes to actually get real value. And so the people that are starting now are digging a moat and they're digging a moat quickly. And if you don't start digging a moat until their moat is already pretty deep and pretty wide, you got a long way to go to catch up to them. And the way that works in this world is the more iterations you do of getting data, learning which data has actual value, which ones don't, training your AI models, it's like teaching a small child, right? You have to teach it. When that child becomes you know, a teenager, they learn faster and they learn better and they'll have better data. And if you're starting with an infant, when there's already people in your industry that are adults, it's hard to catch up. And that's exactly what's happening in worlds where we are figuring out how to apply AI to things like in Shelby's world, how we can process the entire journey to contracting a piece of space. It's happening where we're looking for customers, where we're actually applying hunting algorithms to find tenants that might be appropriate for a piece of space that's not coming available for three years, we can tell that in advance. We're looking for investing opportunities where we have hunting algorithms that are starting to form an opinion on particular pieces of space and the arbitrage opportunity between what they are now and what they could be um, if we entitled them differently. 
If you're not operating with that kind of information advantage where you're not already iterating, you're not already trying things out, seeing what data works, seeing what data is available, it's going to be very hard to catch up. You know, the train's pulling out of the station and accelerating. And if you're still on the, you know, waiting for the train, it's going to be very hard to compete. And we're already seeing it with the massive amount of capital coming into the space. You need an information advantage to compete. Shelby, I think that was Dean definitely giving you and your team uh, full props for where you're headed with your AI company. The hurdle to adoption, uh, sometimes the information just isn't always there. Shelby, if you could comment on, as you roll out your organization, your team, and you're providing these services to your clients, where are some of the hurdles when we're, when we're lacking information? Yeah, I think there are tons of hurdles to adoption. I actually think adoption is harder than the actual implementation of the technology. And I think that we know a few things about change management and adoption. We know, for example, that where the C-suite is engaged in the change, it is much more likely to happen because the tone from the top is the single biggest predictor of whether or not a technology implementation will succeed or fail. And that actually blew me away, but nonetheless, it's correct. And then in addition, some other lessons that we can learn in terms of how we can enhance that change journey is I think people say, gosh, I'd really like to try AI. Let me give it a go in a pilot. What we've learned over the years is that people that pilot sort of technologies aren't actually going to ever end up really getting anywhere. And so what we would say is, you know, pick three or four different areas that you want to focus on. Don't just put all your eggs in one basket and then say, OK, we're going to try out three or four things. We are definitely going to go to a full scale deployment with one or two of these things, meaning that you're planning backward from getting to a full scale implementation of your technology across your business. And so, you know, and you're sort of starting from that end in mind. And then you're sort of free to experiment along that journey, noting that some of it will fail. But if you build that failure into your process, you're much more likely to succeed across the board. And then finally, just in terms of the change journey, if your organization knows that you're not going back and that you are going forward, I think that it can really, really smooth that change journey. I'll add a couple of things in there because I think you're 100% right. Top-down sponsorship is critical. I, I learned a change model a long time ago that it sort of went like this. And most people miss the first step, which is called unfreezing. Unfreezing is about making people believe and be aware of and buy into the fact that there's a problem to solve in the first place. And if you skip right to solutioning, oh, I've got this fancy new thing that we can do, but people don't agree that there was a problem to solve, you have to back up and get them to agree that there's a problem to solve. So the first thing is unfreezing, get people to buy into and agree that the way that they previously did things is no longer uh, suitable for the competitive environment for whatever it is that you're trying to tee up. And that's a, a really, really important step that most folks miss. Then solutioning, bringing people along, getting them involved in the process so that they buy into it, really important. Then the final step is sort of locking them in. And there's a couple different strategies in locking them in, which is burn the boats. Whatever they used to use, take it away so that the only path to actually executing their jobs, doing things, going forward is through whatever you've now put in place. Then it becomes very essential for them to actually adopt because there's no other path. We did this with VTS. There's no path for our leasing people to actually approve a lease anymore other than through VTS. So we have 100% adoption. We've Everybody has to use it. And then the last bit is compensation. Most people miss this. If you want to see how people behave, uh, see how they're paid. And if you want to change their behavior, you have to change the way in which they're paid because they will behave in the old way if you've asked them to do something new and you don't alter the way in which they're going to be compensated for it. And some 
the material way, they'll continue exhibiting the old behavior and you'll wonder why you didn't get adoption. Well, it's because you're rewarding the old behavior, not the new behavior. All important things to think about when you're building a change program. Incentives drive behavior. And I am definitely going to be stealing burn the boats. I love that analogy. Dean, sticking with you for a second, the new advances through prop tech in our vertical and commercial real estate, what are some of the new ones that you're seeing that other companies can benefit from or other landlords can benefit from that you've seen that are really impressive? Yeah, there's a few coming along. I'm really impressed with, and I get to see this really interesting global perspective about where innovators are doing interesting things. Of course, you know, Shelby is barking up the right tree with, you know, streamlining what is an incredibly manual process. So I'm excited to see what her gang does. I'm excited uh, to see a group out of Paris called We Maintain, which just completed its Series B and they're coming to North America, but they've got a really interesting footprint where they've essentially tackled what no one would realize is a big problem, which is elevator maintenance and management. It's a massive industry um, that was an oligopoly that was poorly run. They brought a technology solution, a labor solution, and basically made elevators into elevators as a service and are winning the world by storm. And they've now started to add other categories into kind of the property management space. We're essentially reimagining the way in which the service proposition of property management would be done. Quite excited about that whole universe because it's ripe for change. We're massively involved in digital twins. I think the effluent of data that comes off of buildings is just falling on the ground right now. No one's really taking advantage of it. And in order to actually do something material with all of that gold that's out there, the right path is to integrate all of that into a model of the building that you can access in a very interesting and analytical way. And that's what's called a digital twin. There's a great company out there called Willow out of Australia that's doing really cool work with us. Uh, Microsoft um, is doing some very interesting work in the space. A company called Metricus out of the UK is doing very interesting work on the censoring side, which I think is a hugely important part of where we're headed. So those are just three pools right now. The whole AI world, the whole sort of property management reinvention of the tech space, and then I'd say uh, digital twinning, very interesting. If it's cool, I'm going to jump in here and sort of layer on top of that. Tons of interesting companies. The one thing I'll layer on is that in commercial real estate, there seems to be a slight bias to only using prop tech. And I would just encourage companies to look outside those that tackle cross industries. I mean, where you have a problem that's unique to commercial real estate, absolutely deep expertise is critical. But that said, where it's something that's quite ubiquitous across industries, I would encourage companies to look across industry in order to ensure that they're picking up lessons there. And the other thing I'll layer on, and Dean, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but like, you know, I think so much of it is about the core sort of anchor technologies that you choose, but I also think it's about having an interconnected world. So for example, there's no reason why your leasing system shouldn't talk with your documentation system, shouldn't talk with your buildings and understand your site maps. I just think it becomes so important to have this 360 degree view of your data in a way where all of your various core systems can really be interconnected. Yeah, that's actually 100% right, Shelby. It's the first thing I did over the last 24 months other than sort of retool the team was build what I would consider a contemporary architecture for the commercial real estate company. And so that's a very competitive data environment with all of the right data automation tools, all SaaS, all in the cloud, all very uh, scalable and an integration environment on top of that that allowed me to plug and unplug anything into it without the spaghetti mess that is typical when you start plugging systems together so that we could actually have a much more, call it 
fluid environment between all of our systems with a really robust system of record and a lot of automation in there. So we, I basically call it the de-spreadsheeting of the company. And so that then positions us well for to go to the next level of maturity where you start to layer analytics, you start to layer automation, you start to layer AI on top of something more robust. Because if you try to put that stuff on a crumbling foundation, it just doesn't work. And those horizontal technologies are not real estate specific. They're absolutely kind of globally competitive, relevant pieces. And then I'd layer on another thought you raised, uh, Shelby, which is one of the things I find that's very frustrating about PropTech is that it's a lot of point solutions. It's not only point solutions on a point in the value for real estate, but a point solution geographically. So if I find a solution that works in Canada for leasing, I have to then go and reinvent the whole curve when I go to London, when I go to Australia, when I go to the US, because the technologies don't seem to move across borders very well. And that's very frustrating. I don't want to be a systems integrator. I want to be a real estate company. And so to all you prop tech guys out there, girls out there, try to build something that actually works on an international basis. Even if you trial it in the first market, you got to realize that a bunch of real estate companies who are big customers are very frustrated because they they don't have pan-global solutions, and yet that's what we get paid to do. So very challenging to have such a fragmented uh, set of solutions out there right now. <laughs> Dean, we are now deployed on four continents, so. Great. We're listening. Shelby, just uh, picking up on uh, something you said earlier, what data is now the new oil, and in conjunction with both of your comments here, if you could comment on how long it takes to build these cross-border, these four-continent type services where the data is hard to get. Goodness, there are so many layers to that question. Um, so first of all, I wish I could take credit for data as the new oil, but I'm afraid that is a common saying in our business, um, albeit it's so true. I think that you really need to think about what kind of data you want, and that will drive business value in your business. And I think you need to start with where the value is. I think one of the things we've learned, not to get too technical here, is that a couple of years ago, we were all about data warehousing and shoving piles and piles and piles of data into an organized sort of database, and then realized that we had a bunch of data points that we were never going to look at. And we were missing a bunch of data points that we really needed. And so I would always encourage people, whether or not you know how to architect the solution, whether or not you know what the best technology is to help you do that, I would just encourage you to really look at your business and say, what would be really useful here? Now, I think other things can evolve over time. And as Dean said, it's an iterative process. But I think it is really important to sort of start with what's value. Thereafter, the way I think about using artificial intelligence is obviously you can gain a lot of value with that data once you have that built up, but you have to start thinking about your collection strategy. How do you actually go ahead and start collecting data that may or may not be useful to driving those points of value? And you need to spend you know, a little bit of time thinking about your collection strategy. The reason why is as follows. Most AI models won't perform very well unless they've been trained with, you know, let's say a couple hundred examples. And that's, you know, we can debate whether or not that's too high or too low, given the circumstance, but just as a rough, rough kind of rule. And so as a result, we need to be really sure that we have enough data ready to go in order to be able to obtain value. I will just make a little footnote saying that one of the things that we're doing at Arteria is investigating lower and lower data environments where we can start effectively guessing without the data based upon the whole historical data that we've trained, like the whole English language and every lease we've ever seen, you know, start to use that data in a way where we can use less and less data. That said, there is no substitute for good data hygiene. And Dean, I'm curious what you would layer on top of that. Yeah, I mean, listen, you're 100% right on all that you said. The interesting thing is 
if you start with the data forward, you're going to end up in a real mess is what we found. So we worked backwards from value, which is I think what you were talking about, Shelby. So we actually said, what are the most important sort of insights that the organization needs? Where do they need those insights? And then how do we build the data pipelines to support that? Because we had a experience where they basically tried to take all of the um, institutional data and dump it into a data lake, which very quickly became a data swamp. So we drained the swamp and started again and said, right, what do people actually need? What do they use? Why do they use it? And how do we get them those insights? And we worked to deliver those insights in a very kind of data-driven way, building the data infrastructure up to support those insights rather than starting with the data and then trying to see what insights we could derive from it. Well, that very quickly resulted in us building a a data environment with over, I think it was 600 million elements in it because we were able to figure out what people actually needed to financially run their businesses and, and extract insights about kind of decisions that need to be made. We had all the data around, it was just not organized in a way that people could extract it. And it was trapped in spreadsheets and in people's heads and in between processes. So by actually starting with the insights and working back, we were able to clean all that up, take all the effort out of the equation, and get to a place where the data was more reliable. We got rid of the duplication out of it. We got rid of the trust issues, which there's always trust issues in data. Like, is that data really true? And so I think working backwards from values is super important and do it iteratively because you don't know what you don't know when you start. You will find more than you bargain for when you start digging into it. Dean, the only thing I'll layer on top of that is like, for sure, it's iterative, need time and space to explore. But also it occurs to me, um, Daniel, that I left part of your question unanswered, which is around the multi-jurisdiction part. Obviously, it goes without saying that if you are hosting in Singapore, that the rules are quite different than if you're hosting in Luxembourg or, you know, in the UK. Obviously, you know, you really need to be alive as you set up your infrastructure to those data sovereignty and security challenges. And I love when Dean just says, like, we're in the cloud, we're loving it, because that's how it should be and it can be done. But obviously, contextualized within that is, you know, as you're setting up your cloud or multi-cloud strategy or hybrid strategy or edge strategy, you need to sort of figure out, you know, what you're doing in terms of your jurisdictions as well. And what I think is coming up, Daniel, is that there's a huge skill set gap in a lot of folks who are probably listening to this going, I don't even know how I'd start and fortunately, you know, Shelby and I, we've kind of spent a lot of time around these spaces and it seems natural for us. And maybe it's kind of hard to imagine how you go from not knowing some of the words we're even using to actually being able to build a strategy like this. And what I'd say is get some help. There's some great companies out there that are very capable of helping get you going. Pick something quite reasonable, get it rolling. Start to think about how data skills, be they data engineering skills, be they sort of advanced analytics or even just data visualization skills, start bringing some of those into the organization because very quickly what you're going to realize is it's going to be part of everybody's job. We realize that accountants are no longer just accountants. They're accountant data scientists, right? Because now we're starting to think about financial analytics rather than producing financial statements. Even property administrators are having to be a bit automators so that they can automate tasks that they do on a routine basis and you know data visualizers so they can see where the challenges are. And so I'd say, in addition to getting some help to get started, start thinking about how you incorporate some of these skills and capabilities into your team so you can draw it forward. It, it's something that um, will be part of every organization. 
And it's better to just start now. Start hiring some co-ops. Get those co-op students in and infuse that sort of thinking into the organization because um, it's a low regrets move right now, given the trajectory that the world's going. Dean, you're one step ahead as we look at sharing some final thoughts here. I think you just did a great job of kind of advising people to get some help and really get started as soon as they can. Shelby, with the theme of tech and commercial real estate, and this is a journey and you've tied lots back to core values. I love it. Any final thoughts you want to share? You guys have really wrapped it up quite nicely. The one thing I'll add, as you're considering building your team, I think you need to realize that you're not going to get all things in one people. Sorry, one person. Um, as a result, you shouldn't be looking for a data scientist who also knows real estate, who also knows, you know, all of your core systems. I think it's okay to say, okay, we need a little bit of science. We need a little design. We need some people who know real estate and start to try and make a team that's the ideal team because I think sort of looking for super unicorns is probably not going to work in this talent market anyway. And so just really thinking about how you can build the most diverse, thoughtful team possible in order to be able to infuse some of this into your organization and in order to just, you know, get going. The final thought I'll leave with is that we have done a study on first movers and how that happens. And the most interesting thing is the notion that those who are going to start just start. And so they may not know anything more about what they're doing than those who don't start. But I will just say that in technology, it does seem like those who are going to get going are just going to get going regardless of what they know. And so I would say grab some help, think carefully about what you want to do, and then just dive in and give it a go. An absolute pleasure, a ton of great insights. And this concludes this episode of Collier's Talks. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to both Shelby Austin and Dean Hopkins for joining us today. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks for listening to Collier's Talks podcast. To learn more about Collier's Canada, our experts and our solutions, visit colliercanada.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.